Why was it important for you to write this book? We're all designed to tackle high heart challenges. And if we can get our biology and more specifically our neurobiology working the way they should, we're all hardwired for extraordinary. I've studied people who've done extraordinary things in the world, but not one person that I've met started out extraordinary. For every person who built a game-changing, world-changing business or created a breakthrough technology, there were hundreds of people who came really close. And it wasn't the actual challenge that was screwing them up. I think I wrote this book more for all those people. If you want to perform better at work on Monday, this is the book for you. If you want to tackle an impossible, that which has never been done, this is the book for you. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneur's systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 12345678910 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. 
I'm going to start this podcast introduction from some passages at the end of a book our guest today has recently written. What impossible challenges would you tackle if you knew you could be 500% more productive? If you could be 600% more creative? If you could cut your learning time in half? If you could increase your confidence massively and also spike pattern recognition significantly in your brain? I know it sounds like the drug that everybody has dreamed about for centuries to make people feel limitless and superhuman, but it is not a drug. It is a biological process that nature has embedded into each and every one of us, and we don't need to be a professional athlete or naturally talented to access it. What is it and how does one access it? We're going to talk about that in today's podcast because the author has written a book that dissects how one can reach this state to achieve what humans think is impossible for themselves. The book is called The Art of Impossible. The author and today's guest is Stephen Kotler. Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author of numerous books, including The Rise of Superman, Bold, Abundance, and my favorite read of 2018, Stealing Fire. He is the founder of Flow State Collective and is an expert in the field of peak performance and achieving the impossible because he has studied individuals who have done this numerous times for decades. Some of these people are well-known top athletes, special op members, Navy SEALs, and some of the world's top entrepreneurs and innovators. He himself has also been a guinea pig for his own madness and practices it on a regular basis. This is Stephen's second time on the podcast, and we're going to get behind the man that has studied for years the art of achieving the impossible, why he wrote this book, and how we can apply this methodology to achieving the impossible in our own lives. Stephen, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Good to be with you, Chris. It's good to have you back. So first off, I want to say this book is amazing. Um, I just wrapped it up. I'm so glad that I got the chance to read it before you came on the show. Um, I loved The Rise of Superman. I love Stealing Fire. Uh, but this one was so great because you just dissected what people have been doing for thousands of years and not really knowing what they are doing into a formula. And I love that. So I, I've got to start it off. Like, why was it important for you to write this book? Now, there are so many different reasons. I, so two reasons in particular. One is, you know, 30 years of research into, into peak performance. And when I say peak performance, I don't mean anything fancier than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. We're all designed to tackle a high heart challenges and if we can get our biology and more specifically our neurobiology our, our brains kind of working the way they probably should we're all kind of hardwired for extraordinary and so that's what 30 years of, of sort of studying the impossible has taught me is that like i've studied people who've done extraordinary things in the world but not one person that i've met started out extraordinary they, they built towards that and they built towards it in a recognizable repeatable pattern that anybody can apply. So that was part A. Part B was I've spent my career spending those moments in time when the impossible becomes possible, as you pointed out. And um, I've met amazing people along the way. And have, I've probably been in the room like more times when that happened or been in the theater for whatever, however you want to describe <laughs> it, than anybody else, right? But for every person who I saw accomplish this, and whether this is somebody who built a game-changing world-changing business or, you know, created a breakthrough technology or um, did it in athletics, there were hundreds of people who came really close. Mm. It didn't end up in my books, right? Mm -hmm. Every one of my books is a story of like the successes, but for every success in those books, there's probably 900 people I knew 
who got really close and then tripped over something. And as a general rule, what I all, what I've seen over and over and over again is people tripping over themselves. They trip over their own biology basically. And a lot of the people that I have been privileged to spend time with, they're going after grand global challenges, energy scarcity, water shortages, poverty, healthcare mm-hmm. crises. Like these are, we need them to succeed. We as a planet, I feel like need them to succeed. And it wasn't the actual challenge that was screwing them up. It was themselves. They were, you know, getting in their own way in like, in a sense, what are, if you kind of have my perspective, obvious pitfalls, like everybody trips here. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's, you're not alone. Everybody stumbles here and there's a reason. And this is how the best of the best don't right or work around this and um at this point we've been doing this long enough the neuroscience has advanced far enough that you can oh you can decode the plumbing you can see what's really working so i i think i wrote this book more for like all those people right yes it's a book any if you want to perform better work on monday this is the book for you because the biology if you want to tackle and capital i impossible that which has never been done this is the book for you that's what i that's, I studied those people, and uh, that's what I wrote about. I also say the book is really for people who are interested in what I would call small lie impossible. This is all the stuff that we think is impossible for us, right? This could be, for me, the example I give in the book, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. It was a blue-collar steel mill town. I grew up in the 70s. I wanted to be a writer from the time I could remember. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you became a writer. It was a fantasy. It was absurd that mm-hmm. I wanted to be a writer um, that's a lowercase I impossible, right? Meaning there's no clear path between where I am and where I want to go. And statistically, not great odds of success. Becoming a successful entrepreneur, small I impossible. Becoming world-class at anything you do, small I impossible. Rising out of poverty, overcoming trauma, learning how to get paid for what you love. These are all small I impossibles. The formula is the same. The book was lessons learned from people who have gone after capital I impossible. It's meant to be applied by anybody who's going after small line impossible. But the truth of the matter is the tools are the same because it's just our biology. So if all you want is to be a little bit better at work on Monday, it's the same tools. It doesn't change. So you say that, I think you actually quoted in the book, whenever impossible becomes possible, there's always a formula. And so you were mentioning this here. What is that formula exactly? And how is it biologically embedded in all of us? Let's first talk about what the formula is. There's a set of skills that we will call that fall under the heading of motivation. Now, when motivation, which is where this whole all starts, everything starts with motivation because the energy that gets you into the game. When psychologists use the term motivation, it's catch, it's catch all. It doesn't just mean the, you know, extra energy, it's external motivation internal motivation so external motivation is things in the world that we want we're motivated to try to go get money sex fame internal motivations are things like curiosity passion purpose tiny mastery these are things that you know really thrill us from the inside and, and motivate us they also mean goals and grit this gets lumped under the heading of motivation so motivation is where the formula starts but it's all those skills it moves into learning Motivation gets us into the game. Learning allows us to keep on playing. Mm-hmm. Once you've got learning layered in, and there's a bunch of skills under learning, just like there's a bunch of skills under motivation, you need creativity. Because creativity, especially if you're going after high, hard goals where there's no clear path between where you are and where you want to go, 
Creativity is how you steer. And then flow, the last set of skills at the end, is how you turbo boost everything you're doing sort of beyond all reasonable expectations. And when I say there's a formula, when we talk about cognitive peak performance, Mm-hmm. Those are all, there's no other skills. You're always talking about something that falls under there under the heading of motivation, learning, creativity, or flow, because that's what, that's how the biology is designed to work. And when I say there's a sequence, we know you need to start sort of with extrinsic motivation, move to intrinsic motivation, move to goal setting, move into grit skills, then move on to learning because we evolved millions of years ago. And these skills came online as we developed in a specific order, basically that was customized to an environment that may, that's millions of years old, right? One of the reasons we're, we're sort of off schedule is because we live in a very different world than, you know, we lived in a couple million years ago when this stuff started to evolve. In, and, it, you know, a lot of the systems that we're, we're using are, it's not just fundamental law, even some of them are f- flow. Almost every mammal can get into flow. Right. It's a, it's right. It's ubiquitous in nature. They used to think the line was somewhere around, I kid you not, ferrets, that any animal with like sort of more intelligence, more brain power than ferrets could get into flow. <laughs> then the, there, there was a reason for that. It had uh-huh. to do with the endocannabinoid system and the ability to produce anandamide. But now it turns out that we think even that research was wrong and could be almost all mammals that can get into flow. So we are biologically hardwired to perform. Their best flow is opt- an optimal state of consciousness is universal, shows up in all mammals, all humans. And, you know, these are all the skills that you sort of like also need to support flow, which right. is the real turbo boost. So that's what Art of Impossible is about. And that's the reason. So, I mean, I could go one level down and we could talk about it a little bit further about we'll wh- get where that comes from if you want to. But, yeah, you know. Hey guys, real quick, are you looking to grow your online business with a tool used by Salesforce, Nike, and Adobe, but is also accessible to freelancers and entrepreneurs? Outgrow's powerful software allows any marketer to build a wide range of personalized, engaging tools such as calculators, graders, assessment, and quizzes without any technical or design experience. These interactive content pieces have been continuously outshining standard marketing techniques with over 38% conversion rates. Outgrow makes it easy for you to engage with your audience, assess their knowledge, recommend specific plans and products while improving your conversion rate. In fact, Outgrow is ranked as the number one B2B tech company in New York because of the power of their software and their outstanding support. You can sign up for Outgrow at outgrow.co forward slash BM. That's outgrow.co forward slash B as in boy, M as in Michael, and start your free trial today. Now, let's hop back into the interview. So for the listeners, uh, Stephen's broken the book up into those four sections that he just mentioned, motivation, learning, creativity, and flow um, as the process of achieving the impossible. But I think for the circles that we probably run around, flow is a very common thing, but there's probably a lot of people out there that still don't fully understand it um, and probably still give it the connotation of some woo-woo thing that people do. But it's a scientifically proven thing. You've talked about it. People talk about it. It's been proven for years. Um, but could you define that a little bit more? What is flow exactly? Yeah, it, I, the, the, the technical definition, the scientific definition doesn't help very much. Scientific okay. definition is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. Mm-hmm. That's what flow is. More specifically, because that, as I said, doesn't help us very much. Flow is any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. You get so focused on the task at hand on what you're doing 
so absorbed in it that everything else just disappears. Actually, mm-hmm. awareness will merge. Your sense of self will diminish, get really, really quiet. Awareness of kind of bodily function will disappear. Time passes strangely. It, sometimes it slows down. You get a freeze from a factory, a car crash. More frequently, what's much more common is you get so sucked into what you're doing that an hour goes by in what feels like two minutes, right? right. You lose your sense of time. Um, performance goes up so much in this state that, that it creates a sense of control. Like you can control things you don't normally you know. The, the final characteristic that sort of distinguishes flow is the technical term is it's autotelic. The state is autotelic. What, what that really means is the state is euphoric. It's an incredible, joyous, pleasurable state. It's our favorite experience on the planet. It's mm-hmm. the most addictive experience on the planet. And it's also completely directly correlated with levels of the amount of flow you get directly correlates to levels of happiness, well-being, life satisfaction. Um, so flow really matters on that stuff as well. And that's how we define flow. Those six characteristics I just listed, mm-hmm. lead concentration on the task at hand, the merger of action awareness, the vanishing of self, time dilation, sense of control, and this autotelic autotelicity. Um, that's how psychologists define flow. That's how they measure it. So if those six characteristics show up during an experience, oh, you're in flow. And this could be micro flow when those characteristics show up and they're really quiet, right? You, this is when you sit down and write that quick email and you just get sucked and you look up an hour later and you're like, oh my God, I wrote an essay. Uh-huh. And maybe your sense of self didn't totally vanish. You didn't become one with everything, which is something that happens at the other end of the estate. Here, you just sense of self sort of vanished in the sense of when you pop back into your head, you're like, oh my God, I got to go to the bathroom and I didn't even notice before, right? Yeah. I have to pee, right? That's the less microflow. And the other end of the spectrum is macroflow. It's when all those characteristics show up and they're kind of cranked up to 11. This is a, a rarer state, um, not just a little harder to achieve, uh, but also fairly common. And, you know, this is a, these are quasi mystical experiences. Time feels like it slows down, right? And the merger of action awareness gets so complete that you start to dissolve into the universe. You become one with everything. We understand the neurobiology of where that comes from, why that happens now. That was some of the earliest work I actually did on the state back right around 2000. Um, but uh, all this stuff is, we understand the neurobiology underneath it. And mm-hmm. that's how, you know, the work I do at the Flow Research Collective where we're a research and training side on the research side where uh, it's predominantly the neurobiology. So these psychological characteristics I'm talking about, this really profound, precise neurophysiological changes. And, you know, when I first started the work, we started, we sort of knew a little about what changes in neurochemistry were going on, brain waves, a little bit about neural anatomy. Now the work I'm doing these days is on networks, which brain networks are involved in flow and how are they talking to us? Is there a flow circuit in the brain? Those kinds of questions. That's where we're, that's where our attention is now. And on the physiological side, flow has a cortisol signature. It appears to have a heart rate variability signature. Certainly heart rate variability is predictive of whether or not you can get into flow. We believe there's a micro-expression signature for flow, which is that your frown muscles are appear to be paralyzed and your smile muscles are hyperactive. So, like, <laughs> you, you know, people are skeptical of the science. They could be as skeptical as they want. It doesn't change the fact that the science, like, has progressed to the point that, like, we know what your physiology is doing and flow is starting to. And this is, so for me, it begs the question, like, why would nature put this in us? It's, it's originally like a survival thing, right? Yeah, like well... We- so 
it is a survival thing. Why would nature put it in and what what it evolved for? Two slightly different things. That was what my reaction was. So we've known why flow evolved for years. When we move into flow, we get a bunch of different neurochemicals. They do a bunch of different things. They amplify focus, amplify attention. Some of them also deaden pain. And humans are the only species that evolved to run down their prey. We can run longer distances than any other species on Earth. And that's what we did. Mm. We'd run down prey. We'd run our prey into exhaustion. Yeah. Um, right. Everything's faster than we are. We're just steadier. And um, we're good trackers. Mm. So any human who could produce a little more endorphins and a little more dandelion, which are very potent painkillers, among other things, could run farther. Because they could run farther, they would get more prey, more meat, more meat means more better health, better survival advantage for their children. That's an evolutionary advantage. That's enough to drive. So we think runner's high is where this evolved from. Why did it become so widespread? Then for, for that to make sense, you have to start, you have to answer a slightly different question first, which is what exactly does flow optimize? Right. Like when you talk about flow is optimal performance, what the hell? So you talked about some of this stuff at the beginning of the podcast where you read a couple of the stats from the end of the book. Um, <clears throat> we know flow amplifies motivation. It motiva- amplifies grit, productivity, learning rates in- in- increase, creative problem solving goes through the roof. So does innovation levels, cooperation, collaboration, empathy, and <clears throat> what's known as environmental awareness, which is our perception of the natural world. It manifests uh, in humans also as the ability to see um, from multiple perspectives, right? You can look at a problem from multiple perspectives. You're just not fixated on your own solution. Right. There's a bunch of physical stuff that also happens. Strength, stamina, um, and endurance goes up while a sense of pain and exertion and exhaustion goes down. So the question you got to ask, because anybody should, is the question you ask, like, why would evolution create a state that does all this shit right like that's weird Mm -hmm. right like that's a very good question and um the answer is that evolution shaped humans but what shaped evolution and the answer is darwin told us is scarcity scarcity of resources is the single largest driver of evolution and when resources are scarce you have two options you can fight over dwindling resources, right. or you can get cooperative, get creative, get innovative, get exploratory and make new resources. Right. Those are your two options. So that is all the stuff that flow amplifies. This is everything we need to either fight or flee, right, to avoid becoming somebody else's resources, or get exploratory, get creative, get innovative, get cooperative and make new resources. That's what flow appeared. Like it was designed for runner's high, but what drove it forward in the species and what accounts for all the things that amplifies is it was our major solution to evolutionary challenges, basically. I love nerding out on this stuff. So I'm going to talk further about you know, definitely the neurochemicals that's happening to us when we get in flow. And I think there's six main ones from how I understand it, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, norepinephrine, and anandamide, right? Is that correct? So uh, that was five. The, oh, you said oxytocin. Six. So oxytocin yeah. is only present in group flow. It does not show up in individual oh, okay. flow at okay. all. Okay. Um, in fact, when, uh, when, when I was writing Stealing Fire, 
Mm-hmm. We thought oxytocin was much more prevalent in flow in individual flow. Also, um, I uh, re- we just I recently did a thorough neurochemical review, and I spent a lot of time talking to Paul Zach, who's sort of the world's leading expert on oxytocin. He's a neuroscientist. Um, okay. And uh, both of us are in total agreement that oxytocin is definitely present in every group flow experience, but does not show up in individual flow, or at least we can't find it anymore. But the other thing that is is worth pointing out is there are hundreds of neurochemicals in the brain and way more than these six are involved in flow. So for example, GABA is everywhere. Glutamate, these are the fundamental energies for the brain. We Mm -hmm. also know that acetylcholine, which is primarily like awake alert, a little bit of focus okay. um, is probably involved in flow, but acetylcholine tends to work in opposition to norepinephrine. So one goes up, the other goes down, but they're both probably involved in this. There's more going on. The six that we were talking about are the largest reward chemicals. Mm-hmm. So they do, they're the, they have the biggest impact on performance. Most of the stuff that gets optimized gets optimized because of these neurochemicals, but they're the big six reward chemicals. So when you talk about flow is the most pleasurable state on earth it's these chemicals that underpin that when you talk about uh that 500 percent more productive number that you started with that comes from a study not our work on uh, mckinsey the business consultancy right. they did a 10-year study of top executives in flow they went around the world and it's self-reported so you got to like grain of salt it a little bit i think but they went around the world for about 10 years asking top executives how much more productive are you in flow and the average is 500 percent more productive so uh and that number while it sounds outrageous, isn't key. like we know from actual laboratory studies that creativity goes up 400 to 700%. And the accelerated learning number we have is 240 to 500%. And that's a Department of Defense study done on soldiers and flow and snipers and flow and, you know, that kind of stuff. So those are really quantitative, hard, or, you know, harder numbers that we can trust a little bit more than the McKinsey one, I think. But uh-huh. we, you know, we've been, we, uh, the collective did have been, uh, doing a, we're in the middle of a multi-year project with Deloitte Consulting, trying to look at it, have a deeper look at what actually gets amplified in business. And we're looking at everything from like income levels to employee retention, to engagement, like everything you might possibly want to know from a business. And we've been doing that for a couple of years and we're seeing that everything we see is in line with those big numbers. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard. It, it gets ridiculously hard to measure how much flow amplifies things because the things that amplifies are themselves are a little hard to quantify, right. but um, you know, the yeah. numbers are consistently huge, no matter what you're trying to measure. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're achieving the possible, you know, you have a big chunk of this book where you talk about motivation and the motivation that we need comes from like curiosity, passion, purpose, the freedom in our own lives to follow our own bliss and then mastery as well. You got to think about this. So th- th- when you talk about internal motivators, uh-huh. those five, right, it's worth sort of this this is a sequence they're designed to work in a sequence meaning curiosity is our basic foundational intrinsic motivator and what's the big deal about intrinsic motivators you get focus for free when you're curious about something you don't have to work hard to pay attention it happens automatically that's a huge deal Mm -hmm. so curiosity is what all starts curiosity is designed biologically to be built into passion Biologically, passion is literally nothing more than like the intersection of two or three or four of your curiosities coupled to some major successes some public successes some wins and, and what that produces. Once you have passion, it's designed to be coupled to purpose. 
I'm passionate about this thing. How do I use this thing I'm passionate about to help somebody beyond myself, right? That's purpose to make a dent in the universe, to help the world. Once you have purpose, the system demands autonomy, the freedom to pursue that purpose. And once you have the freedom to pursue that purpose, that's when mastery is most comes online because now you want the skills that allow you to pursue that purpose well. And once you have that, you need to set up three levels of goals because the sys we're goal directed beings, the system needs three. And once you've got all that, first of all, you're going to start getting way more flow for a bunch of different reasons. Then you start working on grit and there's six levels of grit and it's all sort of like, these are the order. These things sort of come online naturally, it seems. Mm-hmm. And they, they are, it's not that you can't develop these things out of sequence or whatever. It's that if you do them in this sequence, you just get farther faster and they, they all work better. Right. And if you understand it too, because this is like, I talk a lot about neurochemicals and neuroscience and flow states. Like if we understand what's happening to us and how we can tap into this more often, then we can achieve the impossible in our own, the lowercase impossible and maybe the uppercase impossible in our own. I, you know, we talk about it. I always say, we call it cognitive literacy, just okay. understanding what's going on in your brain and your body when yeah. you're performing at your best. Yeah. Right. You don't, and it, and it, I'm not saying get a PhD in this stuff. I'm saying know how the system works so you can get it to work for you. Right, right, exactly. So one of the things that I liked that you mentioned in the book is you talked about um, the different neurochemical cocktails from like passion play, healthy obsessions, and this sort of thing. So, so can I quiz you on them real quick? Like sure. I'll ask you, okay, what are the neurochemicals that come from passion? This They're- is Helen Fisher's work. She's at Rutgers. Uh-huh. She's probably the world's leading expert on romantic love. Um, and passion is norepinephrine uh-huh. and dopamine. And so norepinephrine is hypervigilance. It's obsessive focus. So like if you're falling in love with someone, you can't stop thinking about them. Right. That's the norepinephrine that's doing it. Right. When you're falling in love with somebody and you can't stop thinking about them and you're like unbelievably excited, you can't wait to see them again. And you're uh, already planning your wedding and all that stuff. Well, that's dopamine. It's helping you make meaning (laughs) out of the excitement. Right. So those, those, that's the cocktail for passion. And by the way, curiosity, Mm -hmm just a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine. Okay. Just not as much as passion. Exactly. Exactly. So, and norepinephrine is, is actually also known as noradrenaline, but it's, it's the opposite. Yeah. It's a, no, it's adrenaline. It's just adrenaline in the brain. We call it adrenaline when it's in the body and noradrenaline when it's in the brain or norepinephrine and epinephrine, depending if you're in Europe or America. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and play, what's the neurochemicals that, that are released when we're playing? So again, you'll probably get a little bit of norepinephrine. You'll get way more dopamine and then you'll start getting pro-social chemicals. Mm-hmm. Oxytocin is the most basic one. Um, you will probably, if you're playing and if it's deepening French existing long-term friendships, you'll start getting endorphins because okay. that tends to cement longer term bonds um, marital bliss, oxytocin, endorphins, that tends to be, you know, that kind of thing. And you can start getting serotonin. Serotonin is just a pro-social chemical that make, it means that like, oh, there's a lot of people in the world who like me. I'm safe. I feel safe and secure (laughs) and I'm relaxed. Right. Like that's, that's sort of serotonin. Right. 
And okay, and serotonin is also um, what antidepressants try to release in a person's body. So quite often, the lack of serotonin is connected to that, right? It is to connected. And- so yeah, I mean, the SSRIs can release serotonin. They cannot. Well, butrin, for example, will mm-hmm. re- release norepinephrine um, and maybe a little serotonin. I don't know. Um, but they cut depending on the antidepressant and generate one or two or three. Um, they cocktail these same drugs. Okay. What's being released from healthy obsessions? Um, Is that the same as passion? Yeah, same as passion. Same basically. as passion. Okay. Yeah. Then you mentioned this, but like trust, love, bonding, kinship, and cuddles. Oxytocin, right? Oxytocin is the big one, though, as I said, endorphins. Endorphins underpin like maternal bonding. They're designed to underpin mother-infant relations. So, or father-infant relations, right? Like those, those, that kind of unbreakable, unshakable, long-term, lifelong bonds. Those are often endorphins. So we'll get those in social situations, but they're harder, they're harder earned unless, um, so you can also get them out of like uh, team, well, like when you do really hard stuff together, Navy SEAL training, Hell Week. Okay. Designed to produce kind of endorphins. Laird Hamilton talks about how surfers are often, big wave surfers are often closer to the toe buddies than their yeah. wives because their toe buddies are saving their lives, <laughs> their lives right? Lot, they're right. Like, and it, like, and it happens automatically and literally it does. It happens. It's neurochemical at that point. There's some endor- endorphins involved in that one too. Yeah. It's interesting. Like when somebody has a, uh, or when two people or a group of people go through a life threatening experience and survive it, there's a kinship there that, you know, automatically is just created and your brothers, right? Brothers and sisters, right? brothers in arms. Yeah. Um, relaxed happiness after like a hard day of work and exercise, that's, uh, what are those predominantly serotonin? Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, so the exciting part is getting a low blend of these six different chemicals is why people really love flow states better than even orgasms. Um, because they're getting all of these at once. Well, that will, orgasm will give you a lot of these same ones at once. I think the reason people will prefer flow to orgasm uh-huh. is orgasm is sort of biologically, it's good for one thing. It, it serves, it's an important use value, right? We want to propagate the species, but it's, there's one thing and you're not really present. You can't do anything with an orgasm, right? <laughs> it's sort of, you're actually not there, yeah. right? You're totally gone. Um, flow, you're not that gone. Flow is an active state. We like it most because we're goal-directed beings. And when we're in flow, we're moving closer to our goals. So I think that's why we'll, we'll ultimately people appear to take flow over orgasm. They'll prefer like flow. Now, it's interesting that may be because, because flow is rarer for a lot of people than orgasm. Good that, right. That could also be the reason. And it's not actually rare, which is really funny because we spend like 5% of our work life in micro flow often without even noticing it. But macro flow mm. is rare. Right. And that's, I think what people are responding to, but I could be wrong. So when flow hits, we go into these different states of mind. So regular state of mind is beta state of mind. And then we have alpha, theta, uh, and then gamma state of mind when it referring to flow. So, so beta state of mind is like 
probably in this conversation right now or checking. Yeah, beta is a fast beta is a fast moving brainwave. It tends to show up when we are at awake, alert, and sort of paying attention. Right. Alpha is just below that is a slightly slower wave. Mm-hmm. It's daydreaming mode. It means the default mode network is probably active and your brain is sort of moving from one idea to the next without much internal resistance. Beneath that is theta. This mm-hmm. is where you are when you're in REM sleep. Um, right. Where you right. This is when you get down to theta. So if you, one of the ways to distinguish like alpha, this is where you're thinking about like the green dress that Sally was wearing at your birthday party. And maybe it reminds you of a green turtle you saw on vacation in the Galapagos, right? When you're in theta that, you know, you go from green dress to green turtle to green planet to green universe. You're like this is dreaming where one thing becomes the next, becomes the next, becomes the next. Above beta, there's a faster moving wave called right. gamma. Gamma predominantly shows up during what is known as binding. This is where your brain takes all the different disparate elements that show up at any given moment and binds them together. So like sight comes in at different speeds than hearing, than touch. These are, people don't think about it. They come in at different speeds. The brain has to put them all together in the present moment. And when it does it, it's called binding. Binding also happens when we link ideas together. So when you have aha insight, you get mm-hmm. gamma. Flow takes place on the borderline predominantly between alpha and theta. Now you don't stay there throughout the whole flow state. This is a this is a misnomer. So a lot of people are like, oh, I've got this brainwave device that can drop you into flow. It puts you in alpha. And well, no, there's a whole lot more going on right. in flow than just alpha. And alpha is not flow. Alpha theta borderline is the baseline for flow. Whenever we make decisions, and flow is an action state, so you're always making decisions, you bop all over the brainwave thing. It's just like, where do you come back to? Most people will come back to beta. That's awake and alert. High beta, which is anxious, right? Like awake, alert, not too much stimulation. Um, If you're really good at flow, you'll return to baseline. This is one of the things you see. uh, A buddy of mine, Leslie Shearland, is a neuroscientist did a very lengthy, he's one of the guys who helped us really, I mean, a lot of people worked on brainwaves and flow, but he, he was working with Red Bull and he, I think he looked at 5,000, uh, uh, I think we elite, super elite, like top 5%, top 1% athletes in the world. Okay. And, um, he, that's what, this is what he discovered is that they'll, most people, when they get kicked out of the alpha theta borderline, in like the decision-making cycle or something where you're all bouncing all over these other brainwaves, they get, most people get stuck, right? Like they'll pop up and they'll see something scary in the situation and they'll focus on that. They won't be able to let that go, but top performers can notice that and come right back down to the alpha theta borderline. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the big deal about alpha theta. But the other thing is, this is complicated, but gamma is what is known as a coupled wave, meaning mm-hmm. If the brain is not in theta, you can't make a gamma spike. Gamma emerges from inside of theta, which mm. coupled means. Okay. And so what this means is since gamma shows up when we have aha insights and flow takes place in the alpha theta borderline, um, you're already in theta. It means that flow sort of perches the brain on the edge of aha insights. It's one of the reasons creativity spikes so much. There's other things going on, but one of the reasons is this, this alpha theta borderline is very, very, very creative. Mm-hmm. And you're right at the edge of insight at all times. So you're ready to have a creative breakthrough at all times when you're in flow. So is, is, is gamma, like, is that the same as macro flow? 
or it, can you be in alpha theta still when you're having this macro flow? Uh, I don't think gamma has anything to do with ma macro flow is, is definitely alpha theta. Okay. All flows. The only time that gamma would show up in flow is when you're having aha insights. So where uh, if you, so, you know, how flow is sort of like you can you, you're playing standards and you're improvising on top of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the standard is perfectly performed expertly. In the improv stuff when you are having those improvisational insights about whatever you're doing. So like I'm writing mm -hmm. and, you know, ideas are popping to my brain that those could be gamma arrivals. Mm -hmm. um, those could be spikes of gamma. But usually it's a fairly big, oh, my God, breakthrough moment. Um, and normal flow is just at the alpha theta borderline. So, I don't think I don't the, think brainwaves change a whole lot where you are on the micro to macro scale. Okay, but that's also I don't I've never seen anybody. It's a great question to be tested in a lab. I don't know how we do it right now, but it's a good question. It's to be discovered yet, but that's what's exciting is we're learning. I mean, what we've learned in the past decade about all this stuff is absolutely phenomenal. And you know what we'll discover in the next decade will probably prove all of this incorrect in some way, but we'll find more, more amazing things. But yeah, yeah I'm what I, well, I always like to say that the thing with science is you're usually factually inaccurate because yeah. you don't have the whole picture, yeah. right? But you're directionally accurate. Yeah. Right. And the nuance is lost on most people. You know what I mean? It's not that we prove the fact itself wrong. It's that the context that surrounds the fact totally changes. Yes. And that fact no longer means what we thought it meant. You know what I mean? That tends to be what shifts. I mean, sometimes we're just like, okay, we were fucking flat out wrong on this shit. We were, <laughs> like right brain, creative, left brain, logical. No, we were flat out fucking wrong on that. I mean, come on. Right. But right brain does see holes and left brain does see parts. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the actually one of the big differences is, you know, the left brain literally sees the trees. The right brain sees the forests. And that's so that's that's an actual difference. Right, right brain to left brain. It wasn't creative versus. I mean, we use the whole brain to be creative. We use the whole brain to be logical. Um, but you do um, see certain there are certain hemispheric differences now. So you, you talk about in the book, the importance of risk taking and risk taking is one of those things that drops us into flow, you know, do something you fear every single day, drop yourself into flow. Uh, but there's a lot of statistics around it. And, and one thing that I thought was interesting is that we don't get uh, we don't get the dopamine hit when we take the risk. It's actually before we take the risk, like the idea that we're going to take the risk, the dopamine hits, which actually encourages us to take the risk. So our biology, again, is actually incenting us uh, in, uh, moving well, us I mean, towards taking a risk, like saying towards innovation, right? Okay. What we're calling risk taking is, is is that's right. That we're being designed for innovative solutions to scarcity. Usually, um, is what I would say. But risk, yeah, we are biologically designed to take risks. Whenever we take risks, could be social risk, intellectual risk, creative risk, physical risk. We get dopamine. Dopamine okay. drives focus. And anything that drives focus into the present moment will precipitate flow. Right. And then we move in towards, you know, growth, right? Like that all pushes us towards growth. Um, one thing that I, another stat that you had here is uh, you, you break down the importance of goal setting. I, I meet people from time to time who have achieved success and have never done any type of goal setting before. And, you know, 
part of me is like pretty impressed that they could achieve their level of success without making any goals. Uh, and then part of me is a little uh, disheartened too, because I think if they had goals, they would be even more successful, like structured formal goals, they would be even more successful than what they achieved. Um, but uh, there's big goals and there's small goals. And so what what roles do those plays? You touched on them a bit, but if we could like get into more so there's details. Three, there's three levels of goals. Human beings are goal-directed systems, so we're built to go after goals. When we, we, don't, we, we don't live in reality, we live in a world that is predominantly shaped by our fears mm-hmm. and our goals. That's most of everything that, we can pay, that we're paying attention to in any given situation. And they, the more goals you get, the less fears, the more less fears, the, you know, the more fears, the less goals. It tends to, you know, they tend to be kind of oppositional systems um, for a bunch of neurobiological reasons, but we need mission level goals for our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we need high heart goals that are like one to five year goals that would feed into that mission statement goals. And then we need clear goals. These are daily to do lists. They're your high heart goals chunked into what can I do today to advance this cause? And they all need to be pointed in the exact same direction. Right, right. And then, so, and you mentioned too, that, that productivity actually goes up 11, just 11 to 25% if we have structured goals, right? No, we get, that's high, hard goals. This is John Locke and Gary Latham's work, Fathers of Goal Setting Theory, and they discovered having a properly set high, hard goal, so those mid-tier goals uh-huh. will increase productivity um, 11 to 25%, which is freaking enormous. It's amazing. I mean, are you kidding? Yeah. Right. Like, uh, so huge tool now. I, and the other thing I, w- I want to mention about like the people who claim that they've never set goals. Um, maybe that's true. Maybe, meaning maybe they've accidentally just sort of like locked into their job and, you know, gotten a promotion. Like maybe it's happened that way, but as a general rule, the brain needs to know in any given situation where you're starting and where you're ending it. Otherwise we can't, get to where we're going, like the whole system. This works at every level of our biology. You've probably heard of this if you've anywhere in sports, whether you're talking about like how to catch a baseball or how to ride a mountain bike, you go where you look, mm-hmm. right? You Like if you want to catch a baseball, you got to keep your eye on the ball. It's because we go where we look and we will run to like that. Same thing with uh, a mountain bike. You look 30 feet around down the trail because you'll go there. If you look down at the ground, you're going to crash, right? This works at every level of our biology. We're designed to go where we look, basically. That's what goals are. That that's the same system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're and right. It happens automatically, right? Like that's the thing about when you look yourself down the trail as a mountain biker, uh-huh. right? You just pick a spot thirty feet out and you're moving at thirty miles an hour. So like you only see that spot for a microsecond, then you pick another spot and another spot. But this is how you're you steer all it takes place unconsciously. Right, you're steering towards sort of the spot that you picked out that you can see, and everything else takes place unconsciously. Same thing happens when we set goals. Yeah. Of any kind. And, and that's really kind of dumbed down the the process of achieving the impossible, right? Like you just look at the next step, the next step, the next step, at the next step, and keep going and going and going, and use your. Yeah, the way I always tell people, I've never met anybody who actually. I mean, I've met millions of hundreds of people who have actually accomplished the impossible. I didn't meet anybody who set out to accomplish impossible. I take that back. Peter Diamandis set out to unlock the space frontier um, as a, like his mission level goal. Right. Um, and he did actually 
start out that way. But be, with, with very few other exceptions I have, that's really rare. And the first thing Peter did is he surrounded that problem. That's what, like, when I got to know Peter, he literally built companies everywhere you could build around that company okay. or around that problem, right? That's how do you ha- unlock the space frontier? Well, he built a college to train future, you know, space cadets, he, right? <laughs> then, he, then he created the XPRIZE to find a way to, like, so, so somebody could build reusable launch vehicles. And then he built an asteroid mining company so people would have economic impetus to go into space. I mean, like, he literally built a company everywhere he possibly could around the problem, which is sort of like setting high, hard goals around your mission statement goal. Yeah. That's what he did, right? That's yeah. the same. It's the same thing. And then the the clear goals are just the daily to do lists. Yeah, and and so as cliche as it sounds, it's like you know the old saying: "Do what you love. Do what you love forces you, uh, or is a, about your passion and your purpose." Right? You'll find a purpose generally around if you're doing your passion. Um, but it also it's reducing a lot of according to what I've learned in the book, it's reducing stress and increasing resilience. It's alters the ways your brain filters information, getting us into these flow states more on a regular basis. So we're living healthier lives. And, and so the more that we're in flow, the, the, the longer, is it the longer that people are living or is it, uh, the happier that they are? Or? The, well, it's actually, it's neither. Um, okay. it's well-being and life satisfaction. Okay. So happiness is how do you feel right here, right now, right. in the moment, right. right? And it turns out that when you live a very high flow lifestyle, what you get is meaning, life satisfaction, well-being. But because flow shows up predominantly when we are sort of maximizing our skills, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're pushing on your skills, you're using them to the utmost. You want to stretch but not snap. But you're always a little outside your comfort zone when you're doing this stuff, right? For a bunch of neurobiological reasons, um, that's so the flow trigger, the challenge skills balance, right? We pay the most attention to the task at hand, which gives us the greatest chance of producing flow when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill set, right? That's this is known as the challenge skills balance or one of flow's most important triggers. It's often called the golden rule of flow. And in doing that, if we're doing this all the time, using your skills to the utmost, even if you love what you're doing, is often unpleasant. Mm-hmm right? It's challenging. It's hard. You're so on a moment by moment basis, happiness can sometimes go down, but mm-hmm. meaning life satisfaction, how much you're actually enjoying. It may be unpleasant, but you like it more, right? right? We like, we, we actually, we like, cause happiness itself is a very shallow pleasure. How do you yeah. feel right here right now? And it's not a very enduring pleasure. Yeah. And what are you going to do about the next moment and the next moment and the next moment? And, you know, as I say in the book, more meaningful does not always or often mean more pleasant. Right. Right. I often think about it. So like, I'll give you an example. I was skiing yesterday. Skiing is a, a big flow activity and I do it at a fairly high level. But while I was actually skiing, you know, skiing in flow, when I wasn't doing the skiing, when I was on the chairlift, my muscles were aching. I was freezing. Mm-hmm. I was it was very cold. I was exhausted because we've been going really, really hard. And I, most of the day I was terrified because we were really pushing hard. I was hanging on by a thread for a large portion of the day. <laughs> so if you asked me at any particular moment, was I having a good time? The answer was probably no. 
I wasn't having a good time. Would I have stopped doing it and done anything else in the world? No, not at all. And is my life so much more meaningful and rewarding because of it? Yes, of course. But like at, in the moment, was it super pleasant? No, actually it wasn't, it wasn't at all. <laughs> the question is, what, why, why do you keep doing that? Why do you, is it an overall satisfaction? Or... <laughs> well, we, so you, as human beings, I, Stuart Brand once said, the only truly sustainable long-term happiness is the pleasure of a job well done. Mm-hmm. And we human beings, like when you look at, at our intrinsic motivators, we, the motivated mastery tends to trump most other motivators because the pleasure of a job well done, like just little victory after little victory after little victory, mm-hmm. that is the sensation that we call motivation. And it's really one of our favorite sensations. Another one of our favorite sensations is um, when we activate the fight response in the brain, it's separate from the flight response. Um, if you ask people if, uh, if they, if, what they feel when that response is being activated, uh, it's unpleasant. Okay. Um, it, it like it's sort of like that's what it sort of feels like, right? <laughs> right, right? But it's our literally our. If you let people self-stimulate their brains, they will hit that spot over and over and over again because <laughs> it, it, even though it feels awful, it's the feeling of courage. Okay, and courage is an amazing drug for us. Mm-hmm. Courage, mm-hmm. hope job well done all because all these things point we're goal-directed systems and these point these say whoa you're moving towards your goal oh you're going to get what you want or you've got what you want but now go to the next one and go, right exactly. biology tends to like the long-term pleasures more like we like longer term pleasures more than we like short-term pleasures even though mm-hmm. it often feels like the exact opposite <laughs> in the moment right right health food versus sugar and chocolate one thing that was really interesting is, is i learned in the book um about when we get creative insight there's a part of our brain called the anterior cingulate cortex the acc that lights up and actually there's a reduction i think in the prefrontal cortex area and then the ac if i remember correctly um but i may be wrong but then the ac lights up when that insight comes in that tends to stimulate some dopamine and we get more creative insight from that combination. Is that right? So there's no, well, sort of, you're you're conflated a bunch of stuff. What the anterior cingulate cortex does is it helps us select sort of what to do next. And it can be very, very logical and linear, Mm -hmm. or it can help us find remote associations between ideas. So when it's okay. remote associations between ideas, it, that's, that's creative insight. When there's dopamine or norepinephrine that assists the ACC, because when that's in our system, uh, dopamine and to some extent norepinephrine uh, do what is known as tuning signal and noise ratios. They amplify pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. When with these chemicals in our system, we find more signals in the noise. Now this can sometimes be great, can sometimes be creativity. It's also schizophrenia and, you mm. know, all and conspiracy theories. So if like the the more dopamine in your system, the more patterns you're gonna notice. Okay. Right. Conspiracy theories are patterns that aren't there. Um <laughs> right. This is this was a this is a really funny. So Olaf Blanc, who's the neuroscientist who did all this work, he started uh this was this was done a long time ago in the in the nineties, I want to say maybe the early thousands. He was in Switzerland. He took a bunch of images, people's faces. Uh-huh. Some of them were real faces and some of them were scrambled images like your nose, my eye, uh, 
somebody else's lip photoshopped together okay. they looked like real faces but they were fake they were they weren't and and they showed them to a bunch of people and said are these real faces or fake faces and then they gave that same group of people um l-dopa which increases the amount of dopamine in their system it's parkinson's drug okay and uh with way more dopamine in the system everybody noticed everybody called more fake faces real faces mm -hmm. they were detecting more signal in the noise right, right? so in, when you have schizophrenia or mania this is massive quantities of dopamine the dopamine is totally dysregulated and you're seeing patterns everywhere connections everywhere but they found that people who believe in conspiracy theories people who believe in uh, angels, people who believe in God, people who believe in like and people with more of these beliefs tend to have more dopamine in, in their system than others. There's really strong correlations and there's been a lot of this work. Um, most of it was done in Europe um, and they do a lot of it to make fun of Americans because, you know, 79% <laughs> of Americans believe in angels or some like ridiculously high number. Uh -huh. And so they and, you know, conspiracy theories, another American pastime. Um, and so they like you I think European did this research just so they could make fun of us but you know nonetheless it was very helpful <laughs> so the value of uh, you talk about this in the book too the importance of because as peak performers as high performers we can get very obsessive about our goals right we can get very obsessive about what we want to achieve to the point where if we don't take scheduled time off if we don't get out in nature if we don't take chunks of time off it can it can burn us out and i think how uh, it was associated to like there's less we're less creative if we're not taking time off we're less we're in beta state of minds more often having more anxiety happen and um if we can just talk a little bit more about like the importance of and how to take some time off on a regular basis like balancing that in one's life to make sure we don't we don't hit burnout because i think that's a, a legitimate thing burnout, that yeah burnout's a legitimate problem for peak performers and um, what it looks, so first of all, you need seven, eight hours of sleep a night. That's not a non, it's not a negotiable for peak performance over time. Um, especially if you want more access to flow, flow is a high energy state and really requires a, like a good night's sleep. You also need to have active recovery protocols in place, right? At the end of your day, you need to be able to turn off and an active recovery protocol is something that like, shuts you off. It's restorative yoga, long walk in nature, an Epsom salt bath, uh, infrared sauna or any kind of sauna, mm -hmm. um, getting a massage, foam rolling, mindfulness. These are all active recovery strategies. They, they, they change our state and they, they reboot us. What we have discovered at the collective, and I think we need more research on this, but it, it appears to be true. Um, this is an, this, there's a, Mo, we, there's a pri you have what's known as your primary flow activity. This is whatever that thing is that you've done most of your life um, that just drops you into flow. For me, it's skiing. I talked about that earlier. Meaning, right. ninety percent of the time I go skiing, it's going to put me into some kind of a flow state. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, this is walking their dogs in nature, or riding horses, or playing jujitsu, or building model airplanes, or gardening, or you know, dancing to hip hop. Whatever it is. Um, most people recognize it. What we in adulthood, we tend to like, especially as entrepreneurs, as people performers, people tend to not they 
leave, they ignore their primary flow activity. They walk away from it. And it's one of the single worst things you can do for peak performance for a lot of different reasons. When we move into flow, it resets the nervous system. So it calms us down, flushes stress hormones out of our system. Anxiety blocks peak performance. So that happens automatically. Flow is a focusing skill. So the more flow you get, the more flow you get. Meaning like if you go skiing on Monday and go to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're gonna, because skiing taught your brain how to focus its way into flow, you better chance of doing that. It's, um, it's like any other skill practice makes perfect. And uh, the massive heightening of creativity and productivity that you see in flow um, tends to outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. Right. So uh, you can get that, right? So the reason I'm mentioning all this is if burnout is an issue, what we've found is if, if you're sleeping seven, eight hours a night, if you've got an active recovery protocol in place and you, you are getting you know, you're spending about an afternoon a week, though it could be, you know, two hours here and two hours there, but like the equivalent of about four hours a week. Um, in flow, plus you're getting enough sleep, plus you're, you know, three times a week or whatever, you've got, you know, an active recovery protocol where, where you're really sort of coming down your nervous system it is very hard to burn out. Very, mm -hmm. very hard. You will, the only thing that uh, will fuck you up here, pardon my language, is uh, if you have the one of the, like a passive aggressive boss or something like that who keeps moving the goalposts on you. Mm -hmm. um, if it's the one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back, that feeling. Because if, if mastery, right, the progress towards meaningful goals is our favorite feeling, our least favorite is when we can't make progress towards a meaningful goal. And Sometimes we can't make that progress because people are moving the goalposts on us or, yeah. you know what I mean? So in those situations, um, get out, like literally, like there's no, <laughs> you literally, I like, I, I don't know what else to tell you, but like, that's, you cannot <laughs> win. That often happens if you work for a narcissist, narcissists <laughs> do that a lot, right? It's how they, one of the ways they keep control over situations. So in that situation, we literally like start building an exit plan. If you're, you will never, you won't win that situation. And the best thing you can do as a peak performer is start figuring out how to extricate yourself. So I've seen that a lot, but, um, especially in the entrepreneurial world and myself included, like we'll, we'll set goals. And then when we get to that goal, we won't celebrate or take time off or relax. We'll just be ready for the next one and hit the next one. And, and I actually, um, I had uh, started getting fatigue on a regular basis every couple of weeks. Like it would put me in bed to where I just had no energy. And so I got a, I, I got a brain scan and my brain was just toast and it was the voltage was very low and the doctor was like hey chris you you need some scheduled time off you need to take like go to the beach for a week without any devices just chill and so i i took it a bit farther and what i actually did is i went and did a uh, dark room meditation retreat and uh, we took the brain scanner we scanned our brains before and then afterwards um, and the results were phenomenal, but first off a, a week in a dark will, you know, change a person. It will reset a person for sure. Like it did for me. Um, it was a cool experience, but my brain voltage actually increased 125% from in those seven days, which was pretty neat. And then all a bunch of connections from the front and the back that weren't connecting, um, started to, to increase. And it was really a, a cool thing to do. But I think like, this is something that we don't do often as driven people as high performers, um, is, make scheduled time off to really take those system resets. And you talk about this for, in your book. Yeah. For me, I, for me, I have a nine to 12 once. 
every nine to 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. um, if there's, there's a couple of ifs here, it's if it's not, um, if I'm skiing regularly and by myself, mm -hmm. so it's total silence and I can shut my brain off and have like a, a, that will work. But if I can't get access to that once every about nine to two weeks, I need to take, I need to shut it down for like, I usually need about 36 to 48 hours. Like that's not bad. I, yeah. I tend, I don't like long breaks. I tend to like, I, when I, I always do the same thing. I will, I'll either, if it's summer, I'm going to drive to a, a, a mountain where there's downhill mountain biking mm -hmm. and I'm going to go by myself and I'm going to go downhill mountain biking and read books and talk, literally talk to no one for two days. Like not even my wife, like just no one. Right. If it's winter it's skiing. And those are my go-to breaks because I can shut down my brain and, you know, start to like really be able to, make connections between ideas again yeah that's not too bad but how many hours a day would you say you work on average not when you're hustling or like have a big project like releasing a book but you put in four hours six hours eight hours before you're like okay now stop time i work 4 a.m till 5 5 30 uh -huh. pretty much every day the only breaks I take are skiing or my, I, I like I hurl myself down mountains. Uh, I go to the gym. I go hiking in the back country. And other than and I eat food and I sleep and I have an active recovery protocol in place. And, but I work all the time. I love what I do. I don't think mm -hmm. my work is is incredibly incredibly joyous for me. So um, and you know I would rather be working than doing anything. So yeah, I I tend I tend to work twelve hour days, thirteen hour days. That's including though. The, the outdoor activities that you're yeah well i will uh i will take my dog for a hike in the middle of of that for about an hour 45 okay. minutes to an hour um i don't tend to do anything like my food is very fast for me i don't right. like I, it's simple and it's fast i don't spend any time on meals um <clears throat> and occasionally i'll go to the gym for another hour also okay um, you know what i mean if it's not ski season or mountain bike season where I'm, I'm spending that much time on the hill, I'll go to the gym. Um, I'll, I'll hike, I'll get aerobic stuff in the, in the morning. And then I'll at like five o'clock, I'll go to the gym. Do you have a max though, Steven, that you're like, I, I can't do more than X amount of hours in front of a computer before. I, I don't have a max. What I have is I, what I don't, when I'm tired, mm -hmm. I'm tired. I go to sleep, I take a nap or I should like, I don't try to fight my biology okay. on that one. Cause like you, I won't do high quality work when I'm tired. Like I've already lost if I'm trying to, you know what I mean? Um, I don't, sometimes you'll push through and it's fun cause you'll have a busy day and you didn't get enough sleep and it just happens and you can push through. But like, I really often won't try to push through on that one. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. One of the other um, concepts that I want to talk about uh, that you mentioned in the book was the MacGyver method. And so the Mac MacGyver was a TV show from, I think it was the eighties, right? Maybe 90s. back on the air. They, I think it's back on the air. I think they rebooted. The Is it series. back on the air? Yeah. Nice. I, I'm not really a TV guy. So I'm the wrong guy to ask, but I think um, I, I know this because I think Lee Slodov, the creator of MacGyver helped uh -huh. reboot the series. And I know Lee. Gotcha. Gotcha. And he was the one that was the producer, I believe. He was uh, the, yeah, he was the creator. He was the one who came up with the MacGyver method. Yes. And, uh, so can you explain that for us? 
Well, the idea is really simple here. Um, we have innate pattern recognition systems for brains. That's what the brain, every neuron is designed to lump like with like. That's what they do automatically. So what he started, he started to notice that when he had writing problems, when he had to produce a lot of script stuff for as this creator of MacGyver, he would never try to force it. He would always do something that sort of distracted himself. He'd go for a long drive or he'd go home and take a long shower. And some of the ideas would pop into his head, the answer. And, and he got really curious about, well, what the hell is going on? He did a bunch of research. And then you know, a lot of people have sort of discovered the same thing, but it's basically the idea that you can ask yourself, your brain a question. You can mm -hmm. you know, ask your brain to solve a problem for you walk away for an incubation period and then come back. And if you've done it right, your brain will have sort of solved the problem for you because it's pattern recognition system will do it. So the way he does it is, well, let me talk about the way I do it. Okay. So every day I write, I advance my book 500 words and I end it or a thousand words. And I end it by doing sort of the MacGyver session for the next day, meaning I will sit down and I will write down Tomorrow, I need to write a chapter about bluefin tuna and Donald Trump and the cost of halibut in New Zealand, or I don't care what it is, okay, as specific right. as possible. Yeah. Um, I just feed that information in, and then you just walk away. Mm -hmm. And the MacGyver method, if you're starting out, it helps to uh, get a good night's sleep between when you create the problem and when you go to the, the next step. Um, as you get better with this over time, you can just sort of like walk away and take four hour breaks or, you know, hour long breaks or whatever you get as you get better at this. But the idea is you can you basically create the problem and give the brain as many specifics as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't have to come up with a solution, but you have to say, you know, those were all the details I was giving. Give the brain stuff to work with and then give it an incubation period. Let your adaptive unconscious chew on the problem. And then what he, Lee suggests is that you just start an automatic writing session. You just sit down and on a piece of paper, start writing. It's better by hand. Um, the answer to my problem is blah, blah, blah. I found mm -hmm. my writing. I don't even have to do that. Like I can set the problem to challenge myself. And I just, the next morning I sit down at my morning writing session and the answer tends to show up right away within, you know, 30 seconds of writing, but this is the, the brain is dissolved. This is how the adaptive unconscious works. This is both how we learn best, right? Do a little bit of work, walk away for a little while, come back do a little bit more work, right? That's how we learn best. It's how information gets on board into the, the unconscious best. It's also can be how we solve problems best, right? I, mm -hmm. there is no, the more critical the problem that is put in front of me, the more likely I am to say, I need to sleep on it. I need to sleep on it. I need right. to sleep on it. And if I can't sleep on it, I need to take a nap, right? Because yeah. I need to shut down my conscious mind, pass the problem over to my adaptive unconscious. The adaptive unconscious is so much more robust than the conscious mind. It has, conscious mind has very limited RAM, right? We can think right. about about seven items at max, but most of us tip, tap out about four. There's no... These adaptive unconscious has has no. We think its RAM is essentially it's functionally unlimited, basically, right? For for how it how it will actually affect us, it's much more energy efficient, right? The con conscious thought is not 
energy efficient at all. Mm -hmm. The adaptive unconscious is very energy efficient. And conscious thought is really freaking slow, mm -hmm. really slow, right? <laughs> Compared to how the speed of the subconscious, which can be inserted depending on where you're measuring, what you're looking at. In some cases, it's like 2,000 times faster than the conscious mind. I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, dial up versus fiber optics is what, <laughs> yeah. right? That's really sort of the difference. And um, so most people just don't realize that they have a pattern recognition system for a brain. They can use it just like there's a way it can be used to kind of solve problems for us. Um, but that's how, what the MacGyver method is. It's very useful that way. Is that, do you, do you guys know, is that actually like, say you write something down, you can't figure it out and then you go take a shower and a thought comes to you. Is that actually going to the alpha state of mind or kind of going into a light flow when that when we access the subconscious more often or do you guys know if, is is that does that well, line up correctly alpha tends to be the brainwave that's often more associated with creativity okay. um and activity the default mode network you're trying to think of brainwaves as sort of a blanket thing and they don't work that way okay. at all because there's no even when you're like when we say your brain is producing alpha theta right. you're talking about a brainwave that's coming out of the prefrontal cortex okay. right there will always be other brainwaves going on in the brain at the same, same time, time and it's how all they interact that's how the networks start to communicate so it's there's no such thing as an alpha state or a beta that's that's bad new age terminology okay. and um sort of a lot of fake science it's also like you whatever you did in the darkness meditation your brain probably started making all kinds of connections that it didn't like that's probably true and you probably spent a lot more time in sort of alpha and theta states while you were doing that one of the reasons i wrote the art impossible is this kept happening with flow people kept saying oh my god flow is the thing and the blah blah and they kept trying to say it's this brain waiver <laughs> and even in peak performance Flow is not the thing. It's part, it's necessary, but not sufficient. I always tell people when you go through the flow research collectives training, zero dangerous, it's thick, it's heavy, it's hard work, mm -hmm. it's a lot of information. It's, you know, and, and it's designed that way because everybody else is trying to do, oh, we're going to give you three things to do fucking Monday morning. And they're lying. There are no three things you can do Monday morning. Let me ask you a question. Like whatever it is that you do for a living that you're great at in the world, could you tell me how to do it in three things? No. Right? No, of no, course no. not. Yeah. Right? Of course not. Nobody could get like, I always say with, with the peak performance stuff, like it's actually at the end of the art impossible, right? There's an on, a bunch of onboarding things that you have to do, but it's six things you have to do every day and seven things you should do every week. And some of the six things are very quick. They'll take five minutes, two minutes. Some of them are sort of containers that you can do other things inside of, um, meaning uh, their, their, their approaches and, and that not. So like you can reduce it to like those, are the, but you can't get it any farther than that because people are like, well, where should I start? No, no, no. It's not like, you know, I, primary flow experience, maybe the, like the, one of the better places to start active recovery protocol is often a, a really good place to start, mm -hmm. but there's no one place to start because it's a system and you actually should be doing all this stuff and you can't reduce it like that. Anytime somebody wants to reduce it, these are the three things that they're lying to you. <laughs> they're just, they're it's lying. It's more complicated than that. Yeah, right? It's just yeah. more, it, it is the, it is, it's more complicated, you know, 
I always tell my staff, I'm like, if, it, if, it, if they want to reduce it to the three things you can do, or if they want to, uh, I always tell as a journalist, one of the things you learn is how do, can you tell the, when you're working on the cutting edge, how do you know the liars from the truth, from who's really telling the truth? Cause it's tricky. Cause you're at the cutting edge. Right. And what I always, I always tell people if somebody needs a tremendous amount of fancy language to describe what it is that they're doing, they're probably lying. It's not a hundred percent. But as a general rule, they're, you know what I mean? Like I've, I, I spend a lot of time around the smartest people in the world kind yeah. of thing. That's right, what I do for a living. And I'm not saying I'm one of them. I'm saying I spend a lot of time around those people and very few of them. Like they can all they describe. Yeah, yeah, they can all describe what they do as if they were talking to a two-year-old. Yeah, Sure, they can have a very, very technical discussion with you. But even if they're having a technical discussion with you, it's the occasional technical world that's dropped into like casual conversation. Yeah. Everything else where it's like fancy word, fancy word, fancy word, there is some podcast. That's a big You know what I mean? And I'm just like, I'm like, I don't know if you know this, but smart people listen to you and go, you're lying. You're just, you're lying if you're, if this is what you're doing. Well, we don't you, believe you. It's a really good point. Like I interviewed uh, Jeff Hoffman, who's a billionaire, and I was amazed like how simple he dumped things down. It's like this, 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 like, and, and he wasn't about fancy language. It was very simple and basic. And it was- You can explain it. You can't simplify the process. Exactly. Meaning, I can't give you three things to do. Yeah. That's nonsense, yeah. right? Um, <clears throat> That's bullshit. But I can explain to you all, I mean, there are certain things, like I'll tell you, in writing the only thing that i can't explain to you simply and it's not that i can explain to you in fancy language is that you have to learn for yourself is a lot of writing is pattern recognition it's things like rhythm right rhythm and language yeah. right that can only be learned by reading a lot and looking for how does it happen right it's an unconscious thing i can't teach you i can teach you to be more stylish and how to be more stylish and how to develop a writing style but the actual like, oh, this is how language works. This is how rhythm works. That's sort of, you need lots of laps. So mm -hmm. that's the stuff I can't explain where there's unconscious tacit knowledge, uh, what Gary Klein calls tacit knowledge. That stuff is about usually the pattern recognition system, being able to see patterns over and over and over again. That stuff is hard to communicate, not because the ideas are hard and I need lots of fancy language, but literally because you're trying to notice something that is very difficult to notice. Yes. Yes. Very good point. Okay. I want to, I want to wrap up by reading a passage out of your book here. And I think it like simplifies the process of achieving the impossible, uh, really well. And you talk, you have a story here where you talk about your friend, Peter Diamandis and also co-author, um, fortune put Peter on the list of the world's top, uh, world's top 50 greatest leaders. He's the founder of the X prize, which, um, it's Peter's mad attempt to open up the space frontier and reward somebody at $10 million for the first person that can build a ship that go into space orbit um, twice in two weeks. Yeah. And a reusable spaceship is the very thing that NASA couldn't build. It was, Peter felt, the, ne the necessary first step to opening up the space frontier. Everybody agreed that Peter was out of his mind. A reusable spaceship was never going to happen. NASA said it would cost billions of dollars and require tens of thousands of engineers. All the major aerospace manufacturers reiterated NASA's point. Um, winning the X Prize, according to all the world's leading experts, was absolutely impossible. And you say, not for long, less than a decade later, Maverick Aerospace uh, designer Bert Rutan launched Spaceship One into low orbit Earth, low Earth orbit. Two weeks later, he did it again. 
He didn't have 10,000 engineers. Um, he only had around 30 and it didn't cost a billion dollars. It cost $25 million, which is bad ROI, but still pretty awesome, right? Uh, the impossible had become possible. And what does it look like? Here's I don't how... think it was bad ROI, by the way, because immediately yeah. Richard, Br Richard Financially. Branson came in. Yeah, right. well, no, no, Richard Branson came in. It was Paul Allen's money, right? Okay, that yeah. was, uh, right. That was who funded uh, Bert Rattan's project. And um, once, I mean, I don't know how much Branson licensed the technology for mm -hmm. now once and once, but, but he started selling tickets I don't know how many tickets. To the show. It, yeah, he, they've sold at this point, but like they were a hundred thousand dollars a piece, I think, or maybe. Oh wow! But the, and they sold a lot of them right off the bat. <laughs> um, so I don't like once Virgin Galactic is up and running. I mean, it's bad ROI if you're trying to measure in the moment, right? Over yes, 20, that's yeah. Amortized over over the next twenty years. No, I think it's going to be great ROI. Oh, worthy, yeah. very worthy investment. But, but here's how Peter unlocked the space frontier. Here's how he did the impossible. He woke up, he typed on his computer for a while, he had breakfast. Then he went someplace, had a conversation. Then he went someplace else, had another conversation. Then he opened up his computer and punched the keys again. Eventually he had lunch. After lunch, he went somewhere else and had another conversation. He talked on the phone for a while. He punched some more keys. There were airplane rides and trips to the gym. Every now and again, he grabbed a shower and some sleep and he went to the bathroom. Repeats, repeats, repeats. This is what pulling off the impossible looks like up close. And from this perspective, it takes the same amount of time and energy to do be the very best dry cleaner in Cleveland, Ohio, as it does to unlock the space frontier. And I think that is a beautiful way to, to kind of wrap things up and tell people, you know, even if your impossible is losing 50 pounds or uh, solving world hunger or just starting your first business, it is all this, it is all um, put in a step-by-step process uh and a formula to achieve the impossible and um that's all i got steven is there anything else you want to add no this was super fun man <laughs> cool i'm glad you enjoyed it if the listeners so congratulations as of last night or today you guys are on pretty much all of the new york the best-selling lists um you know all the big ones new york times what else Whilst you said you didn't hit la times la times USA today yeah um i think today we're gonna hit the wall street journal and barnes and noble with the times list twice uh there's southern california independent booksellers and there's another list. it's a sweep i think we hit all the big ones <laughs> congratulations um, on that man if the listeners want to get your book or learn amazon. more about you amazon yeah, is the best stephen flowresearchcollective.com Amazon is where you, you'll get the book and of course um, just for the listeners if you want more flow in your life one of the easiest places to start www.flowblocker.com there are about six major things that tend to trip people up the most mm -hmm. and we just built a diagnostic and um, it's not one stop shopping for all your flow needs but it will help you diagnose the thing that is standing be between you and more flow and it'll give you these are the action steps you have to take to sort of remove that stuff. Here. So if, if you're interested in a little more flow, um, you know, read the art and possible. It'll really kind of help. But flowblocker.com is a place to start right now. Perfect. Check that out. You also got some courses out there. They're on flowresearchcollective.com. 
some really awesome ones I hear. But thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really enjoyed it. I love this book. I can't wait till you write another. Uh, no pressure. You know, this one just came out, but I'm excited. Are you kidding? Well, by the way, <laughs> you, I, I can tell you it's November. I've got another novel coming oh, out. Oh, man. You want to come on the podcast again, dude? Let's talk about talk it. Talk about I'll, a novel? I'll read you, it. I mean, it's a cyberpunk thriller. I'll come on the podcast again if you what? like cyberpunk. Well, you did the, the, the other one, which was... Last uh, Tango. Yeah, Last Tango in Cyberspace. This is a yeah. sequel to okay, Last gotcha. Tango. Though I, I have to say... You know, I've been writing novel. I'm a trained as a novelist. Uh-huh. Last Tango is like Last Tango is my fourth novel. Um, three are in drawers. One came out very early in my career. Uh-huh. Two are in drawers. Then Last Tango, and then I've got a, the sequel to Last Tango is coming out. And I actually think I finally have figured out how to really write fiction. Okay. Like every one of them has been a little like it's fiction is a very hard sort of at, different, harder animal, and it's taken me a I think a long time to really. I mean, I think I've had a lot of shots at nonfiction along the way also. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I also, you know, wrote magazine articles for so long for so many people that I got way more laughs. So, but I, the thing about, the cool thing about the next book is I think I finally got it right. Like, I think it's a You got fun, it down. Yeah, yeah, I think I finally, this is the first book where I'm like, yeah, I think this one is like, all the other books, they've all become bestsellers. They've all become cult classics, mm-hmm. but they're harder to read. They're yeah. more of a challenge for the reader. Um, this is the first one where it's sort of like Art Impossible, where it's just like sort of fun start to finish. Um, yeah. And I and I and I sort of think I find I will see right. I'm never the the judge. You guys are the judge. I just. <laughs> you know, I well, just we talked about we talked about Last Tango on the last podcast, and we I did, enjoyed right? about a you know talking more about AI and these sort of things and the future and what it's looking. You know, what it's going to look like and how close we really are to that reality of the future in Last Tango. So, so happy to do it again, man. But thanks, um, Chris. Yeah, it's All been right, a pleasure. I got to run. I'm I'm going to be late for my next my next interview. We'll see be you, good, man. Take see care. You. Thanks, Stephen. Bye. Thank you, listeners. We're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in into the business and turning into the Business Method Podcast once again. And we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.